Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Brian Mason, and I am the minister who serves this congregation, and I want to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us online this morning. Since 1870, this church has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, gender expression, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, I hope that you know that you are welcome here. We are currently worshiping online only, so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter or follow us on Facebook for updates. And with that, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship this hour. You're welcome to join me in reciting our church's chalice lighting. The words go, We light this chalice for the light of truth the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Thank you. 
I'd like to invite everyone now into a spirit of prayer and meditation. Wherever you are, take a moment to center yourself. Pause whatever you're doing and join me with these words. God of sea and sky, of earth and wind, we give thanks for the beauty of the world, for a field of purple crocus, for bright flags snapping in the breeze, for mornings in February that trick you into thinking it just might be spring, for smiling strangers on a city street. We give thanks for our first breath each morning and for the peace of sleep each night. We give thanks for the pipes and pumps that bring safe water into our homes and offices. We give thanks for computers and telephones that keep us in touch with loved ones far away, especially now, after more than a year of isolation. We give thanks for those who work dangerous jobs so that others might be comfortable and safe. And we give thanks for this season, a time to learn from sacred teachings what is right, this time to follow more closely in ways of truth no matter how hard. Let us call to mind the joys and sorrows in our lives, and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Today's reading is the poem for Lent by Joyce Rupp. 
The cosmos dreams in me while I wait in stillness, ready to lean a little further into the heart of the holy. I, a little blip of life, a wisp of unassuming love, a quickly passing breeze, come once more into Lent. No need to sign me with the black bleeding ash of palms, fried and baked. I know my humus place. This Lent, I will sail on the graced wings of desire, yearning to go deeper to the place where I am one in the one. Oh, may I go there soon in the same breath that takes me to the stars when the cosmos dreams in me.
have a tendency to get distracted by the life we're trying to make, the life we're worried may or may not come true, rather than accept life as it is. I was reminded of this last week as I drove along Bridge Street. The car next to me was weaving dangerously close to mine, and so I looked over. I was worried that the driver might be in distress, only to see that the person had one hand on the wheel, the other gripping a phone they were giving most of their attention to as they typed away on what I assume was a message worth maybe crashing for. I thought about them, and then I decided to say a prayer for their safety, and then I asked for forgiveness for the thoughts I was having about them, and then I turned down the next side street. And later that day, I sat down to eat, being sure on such a cold day to give thanks for a hot meal and a warm home. And midway in, I caught myself zoning out on a story that popped up on my phone, mindlessly chewing the good food many people myself included, took great effort to prepare. Food, the earth, took great effort to grow. Suddenly I felt a connection with the multitasking driver as I imagined all those farmers and grocers and butchers silently cursing me as I neglected the gifts of flavor and a full stomach. In these modern examples, the driver and I are two people very much left to our devices. But what I'm describing isn't just a technological issue, it's personal and social too. It's commonly understood that we're sorting into camps or tribes, as we often hear, rarely interacting with people who don't look or think like us. In a way, technology and now pandemic isolation have further sorted us into camps. This wouldn't necessarily be a problem, but research shows that this actually limits the people and ideas we encounter. And when this happens, it distorts our worldview. We see and hear only what we want. Cherie Harder, a seasoned social and political advisor, goes so far as to say that this way of living distorts common life and fragments our worldview. She says that if we want to think more deeply, understand more fully, and live more abundantly, we're going to have to get our heads straight pull ourselves back from isolation and get undistracted. Pema Chodron says that from a Buddhist perspective, we've been strengthening this habit of distraction for lifetimes. You don't even have to believe in the Buddhist idea of reincarnation to see ample evidence of humankind's distraction and tendency to choose fantasy over reality. This tendency endures because it comes with a false sense of security and enjoyment even. It's enjoyable because distraction lets us get away without having to take stock of our lives, our mistakes, and bad habits. Rather than face tough truths, we redirect what should be self-criticism onto others. What's worse, many of us search for things to numb painful truths, We look for things to take away the dullness, to distract us from the cries for help we'd hear if we weren't shouting at everyone and texting while driving. We get hooked on this lifestyle and even give it supports that come in many forms. Addiction, cruelty, dishonesty, self-righteousness. These addictions or tendencies exist because they let us cover over uncomfortable feelings that live in all of us. Everyone honest will admit they struggle at times and maybe even a lot of the time with hard stuff, with life's trying moments, 
discomfort with tough truths we don't want to accept. It's hard to admit we're sad or self-centered, but we are, even in the relationships that are supposed to matter most, like love and marriage. The sociologists Francesca Cancian and Stephen Gordon, they discovered before the 1950s people commonly said, and I quote, love means self-sacrifice and compromise. Just a decade later, in the 1960s, people completely changed and started saying love means self-expression and individuality. On this topic, Eli Finkel, a psychologist and marriage scholar at Northwestern University, he argues that since the 1960s, the dominant family culture has been the self-expressive marriage. Americans, he writes, now look to marriage increasingly for self-discovery, self-esteem, and personal growth. Marriage today, in the words of that same study, says is primarily about adult fulfillment. Even love is selfish these days. In Ecclesiastes, the poet tells us what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Why has the poet reached this conclusion? Because, and I quote, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and those who increase knowledge increase sorrow. The poet knows there's a limit to human rationality and words and that there's something amiss in the world. The poet also knows that we are creatures who, in the truest sense of the Hebrew word for sin, we miss the mark. That's what the Hebrew word sin translates to in English. Those ancient religious poets knew as well as any modern psychologist that we have a tendency to miss the mark. This is why religions of every age tell us to shut up. They say, be quiet and listen. Be still and know that I am God, the psalmist writes. Do not act, be silent, do not speak, and like a log of wood, be sure to stay the Buddhist saying goes. Slowing down and turning inward in prayer and meditation grows tolerance for mystery. It reminds us that there is a limit to the power of words and reason, and therefore we must train ourselves to listen. This past week, Ash Wednesday started the season of Lent. Lent before Easter, like Advent before Christmas, is a time of penance and preparation. And if you're wondering what good Lent is for Unitarian Universalists, I'd say that perhaps we especially, we lovers of science and world religions and critique, we self-sorters extraordinaire, are a prime audience for Lent's suggestion to shut up, give alms, and pray and meditate. According to tradition, the whole point is to let go of the urge to make excuses for failings and shortcomings. A time to let go of the defenses and ego tricks we have that convince us we're smarter, blameless, and correct in all those shreds of so-called goodness we claim in ourselves. We do this so that we can humbly ask God to help us see ourselves as we truly are, rather than as we think we are. The season reminds us that it's never too late to be honest that we're obsessed with self-image and overly focused on issues rather than on doing what our faith calls us to, which is searching for ways to grow in right relationship with others and ourselves. So this past week, the Washington Post 
put out a story that painfully proves how obsessed we are with issues. The report shows that while the nation was wrapped up in the issues regarding the presidential transition, endlessly glued to screens showing political shenanigans, in January alone, 3,100 people died of coronavirus each day. That's one person for every 28 seconds. As we bickered about masks, as we complained about this or that politician, as we came home and complained about our jobs, our friends, our fellow church members, every day, one in every seven children in Wisconsin struggled with hunger. That our world goes on like this from generation to generation verifies the Buddhist teaching that says we're all a mixture of aggression and loving kindness, hard-heartedness and tender-heartedness, small-mindedness and open-mindedness. But that same teaching goes on to say that we are not, or at least we need not, be predictable static creatures. We're not always the same. We change as often and as dramatically as the weather. What wisdom teaches is that behind our views and opinions is a dynamic energy of life that is always there, an energy of life that is unchanged by opinion and reaction. And that dynamic energy is what I call life calling unto life. But what does it mean when the Buddhists say there's a dynamic energy of life? And what do I mean when I say life calls to life? The modern-day mystic and Franciscan priest Richard Rohr, he says that the reign of God has much more to do with right relationship than with being privately right. It has much more to do with being connected than with being personally correct. Wanting to be privately right is an impossible notion of individual salvation, and it creates individualists. Whereas the desire to be connected to others in right relationship introduces cosmic salvation, and therefore it creates humans, citizens, caretakers, neighbors, and saints. This is the energy of life. This is life calling unto life, right relationship with ourselves, the world, and others. This living is focused, honest, and self-aware, and it is committed to becoming humane, to citizenship, caretaking, and neighborliness. Over and again in the scriptures we inherited from our Unitarian and Universalist ancestors, we see that the effort to live in right relationship never fully liberates us from individuals' tendencies because it's impossible. We're too good at missing the mark. And so the act of self-creation, the act of self-liberation is never-ending. From the womb to the tomb, we are unpredictable and change like the weather. And the world we inhabit, our communities and the systems we create have and always will reflect this. Just look at Washington, D.C. for proof. Look at how many religious denominations are dividing because of nonstop infighting. Look at City Hall, school boards, missing the mark as part of our DNA. There are many models that depict human and spiritual development. One observes that as we age and grow, we move from order to disorder to reorder, often more than once in a lifetime. 
This teaching says the hope of waking up to the life we're living, to living with the pain and the wonder, rests in a willingness to lose ourselves in order to gain ourselves. It is a faithful act, patient with mystery, that allows us to move through the stages of life into a deeper humanity defined by non-egocentric love. In Pope Francis's most recent encyclical, in which he takes up topics like human kinship and social friendship, the Pope writes, Human beings are so made that they cannot live, develop, and find fulfillment except in the sincere gift of self to others. Nor can they fully know themselves apart from an encounter with other persons. I communicate effectively with myself only insofar as I communicate with others. No one, he writes, can experience the true beauty of life without relating to others, without having real faces to love. This is part of the mystery of authentic human existence. Life exists where there is bonding, communion, fraternity, and life is stronger than death when it is built on true relationships and bonds of fidelity. On the contrary, there is no life when we claim to be self-sufficient and live as islands. In these attitudes, death prevails. Will Willimon used to be the dean of the chapel at Duke University, and he once said that the needs of the world are too great and the lures of the world are too seductive for us to begin to change the world unless first we change. The status quo is too alluring. It's too alluring because the status quo is the air we breathe. It's the news we watch. It's our institutions, our churches, our politics. The only chance we have to break free from this endless cycle is to be transformed, to cut ourselves free from all those certainties, all that self-righteousness and addiction. This act of transformation starts with us by listening to our lives rather than rushing along to the next thing, phone in hand, steering wheel in the other. In this season, in the dead of winter, on the eve of spring, we are called to be silent, to enter into the mystery of life by being still, by opening ourselves. Silence, writes Tish Warren, Silence gave me space to remember that my most urgent spiritual questions are not necessarily the ones that will endure. To be a person of faith is to sit, however uncomfortably, in mystery, and something that we can never quite nail down or name. After all, she says, we're talking about God here, the maker of the crab nebula and black holes and protons and puffins. All of us miss the mark. We run past our lives in pursuit of whatever we think will improve our image in the eyes of others. But this is the opposite of what it means to live. To live is to be seen in love in the eyes of someone else and to see others in love as a citizen, caretaker, and neighbor. To live is to find communion, to be part of life, even in the pain. So do yourself a favor this Lent. Be quiet, love someone, and keep your hands on the wheel. Amen.
Randock Lovely wrote, Let there be an offering to sustain and strengthen this place which is sacred to so many of us, a community of memory and of hope, for we are now keepers of the dream. The mission and ministries of the First Universalist Unitarian Church of Wausau are made possible exclusively by the generosity of our friends and members. I encourage you to stop by our website and see how you can make a one-time or sustaining gift. I thank you for your generosity in advance. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that cast out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away.
This is Mandy Wright. I wanted to ask you to consider if you could give or give a little more yet to our stewardship fund. Things are wrapping up, things are looking good, but we still have a few people we are hoping would pledge who have pledged in the past. And of course, if you can give a little more, that always helps. I just want to remind you that, you know, obviously we're not meeting in person. I am starting to really, really miss this and look forward to when we can meet in person again. But of course, our church is still reaching out and serving us and our community. I know that there's been donations for the neighbor's place. I know, of course, the sermons are being broadcast. I myself have taken part in Soul Matters, which was so lovely and so so helpful in getting through this time of really feeling separated from so many people. And then I'll also just mention on behalf of my kids and the kids programs that for each one of my kids, particularly the older two, the youth programs that have been offered through this church have been absolutely life-changing. And honestly, I, I joined this congregation because I saw it as an opportunity to raise my kids in the kind of community that I knew would support them. And I saw kids that were older than mine that I wanted my kids to be like. And all those hopes have been really fulfilled in terms of my kids are supported at every turn with whoever they choose that they want to be. And they have built an incredible network of friends and advisors um, that frankly sometimes outweigh me and my parental advice. And I'm eternally grateful for that. So I just ask you to really dig deep consider that uh, this is a foundation for our community and community is likely, I think we are all realizing more important than ever, even when we can't physically be together. It's so critical that we maintain the infrastructure of our church community so that we can come together, we can support each other, and we can really be aware of the needs like the neighbor's place and like many of our church members who truly are isolated so that hopefully we can share those burdens and get through this stronger on the other side. Thanks so much. <laughs>